Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Clock concerns. U.S. regulators call for a suspension of Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine. Inflation inflection. The latest U.S. data shows prices heating up and grabbing grab. Southeast Asia's ride-hailing and delivery giant set to go public in a $40 billion deal. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move this Tuesday and a jam-packed show coming up. First to that breaking news this morning. U.S. regulators are recommending pausing the use of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine over concerns about rare blood clots. Now, we are talking less than one blood clot event per million doses administered given here in the United States. But obviously, regulators taking no chances. We've got details and analysis on that coming right up. But as you can imagine, that news driving market sentiment this morning with investors questioning what it will all mean for the speed of vaccine rollouts in the United States, but also beyond Dow Futures are softer again this morning and shares erased record highs on Monday, eased back from record highs on Monday. The other big economic driver this morning, the latest U.S. inflation data too. CPI in March was up some 2.6% from a year ago versus forecasts of 2.5%. The expectation has always been that inflation would spike above the Fed's 2%-ish target this year. But with Jay Powell talking about an inflection point in the U.S. recovery, investors will remain nervous, I think, about just how temporary this spike will be. Now, for those that believe digital assets like Bitcoin are a hedge against inflation, today's data also pivotal. Bitcoin surging past $63,000 to an all-time high just a day before crypto exchange Coinbase Global is listing directly on the Nasdaq. But that's not the only IPO we're going to be talking about today with Southeast Asia's tech superstar, the ride-hailing and delivery giant Grab Grabbing the opportunity to go public here in the United States. As I mentioned, a whopping $40 billion deal. All the details on that shortly. Wow, that's a lot of noughts. Let's get to the drivers. Health officials in the United States calling for an immediate halt, quote, in using Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. This comes after at least six women suffered blood clots after receiving the vaccine. Dr. Peter Hotez is co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, always great to have you on the show. I mentioned there less than one instance of a blood clot here in a million COVID vaccines delivered, but the regulators here taking no chances. Talk us through what you see here. Yeah, I mean, Julia, what, what what's going on here is that the two major vaccines that use the adenovirus vectored platform, and that would be the J&J and the AstraZeneca 
vaccine have been halted uh, either in the U.S. in the case of the J&J or in, in many European countries in the case of AstraZeneca for the same reason. They both seem to be eliciting a rare event in which they uh, produce a certain type of antibody that activates platelets and then causes blood clots. And the blood clots are happening in, in the part of in the veins that drain the brain. They're called cerebral thromboses. And even though it's a very rare event, about one in 100,000 to one in 200,000 with the AstraZeneca vaccine, one in a million with the J&J vaccine, it's giving people pause, uh, particularly in countries uh, that, that have other options at this point. I think a lot of people will be looking at this and saying, why is it all women? It's women between the ages of 18 and 48. Obviously, it's, it's too early to speculate, particularly when we're talking about such tiny numbers relative to the number of, of vaccine doses being administered here. But Dr. Hotez, what might be causing this in, in women specifically? Yeah, and, and more likely premenopausal women. So we, mm. we need to do an investigation or a, a number of theories. Maybe it's because oftentimes premenopausal women have uh, more robust uh, immune responses in general. But, you know, whether there were underlying factors that could predispose to blood clots such as smoking or uh, use of, of birth control, all of that's going to need to be investigated. And that's going to be very helpful because if we can you know, do a surgical strike in terms of understanding specific risk factors, then we can continue those vaccines uh, for the rest of the general public. And and as uh, worrisome as it is for the U.S. And, and Europe, it's absolutely catastrophic for African countries and Latin American countries that are almost right now completely dependent on adenovirus vectored vaccines for COVID-19. They don't have access to the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines in a big way. Pretty much what they have is uh, the the J&J, the AstraZeneca, and the Gamalaya adenovirus vaccine from Russia, which we really don't know anything about because it's not going through stringent regulatory authorities or, or the WHO at this point. So, um, so how we're going to fix that and provide alternatives uh, for Africa and Latin America if necessary. And so what you've got now are individual countries will need to assess risk versus benefit, uh, given the fact that it is an extremely rare event and COVID-19 is so devastating. And, and, and complicating all of this, of course, is a very uh, active anti-vaccine campaign from groups coming out of the U.S. and from the, the um, Putin-Russian government, which is launching this, which has launched this whole system of weaponized health communication and specifically is working to discredit um, Western uh, COVID-19 vaccines. So, you know, when you put all that together, it's yeah. a very complicated mix uh, that's going to take a lot of sorting out. And um, more work needs to be done, as you said, to, to research exactly what's happening here and perhaps isolating as was, was done with the AstraZeneca vaccine saying, look, if your probability here of um, getting a blood clot is higher than your probability of being hospitalized with COVID, then fine, you don't take this vaccine. But if the alternative probability is higher, then you still can. And that's obviously what we've seen with AstraZeneca. We wait and watch what happens with this vaccine. Um, Dr. Peter Hotez, there will be people who have just had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I actually have a female member of my family in the past few days. What do we need to be telling them? What do they need to be watching for if they've had this vaccine over the coming days and weeks? Yeah, well, first of all, Julie, and I have family members, too, have gotten the J&J &J vaccines and friends and colleagues. Um, a lot of people have, and, and so I, and as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, and what I tell them is, uh, first of all, 
relax. It's it's an extremely rare event, and it's it's highly unlikely. Um, but if you uh, do start having uh, severe headaches, um, which could be indicative of cerebral thrombosis that that are long lasting and not easily relieved by painkillers, you may want to seek medical attention and and have a plan for that. But this is not a time to panic because it is an extremely uh, rare event, and it's highly unlikely this is going to happen. But um, you know, have, have be thoughtful. Be mindful and if around two weeks uh, after your vaccine you start having uh, odd symptoms which can include clots in other places too such as leg cramps or um, uh, shortness of breath and you think you're having chest pain or certainly severe headache then go ahead and seek medical attention and get it take, get it looked into essential context as always great to have you on the show with dr peter hotez there thank you sir Okay, let's move on to our next driver. A key U.S. inflation report coming in stronger than expected. The consumer price index in the United States jumping 0.6% in March from the previous month as the economic recovery continues. Christine Romans has all the analysis for us. Christine, it was the year-on-year comparison that I made earlier on in the show because that number looks alarming. And certainly that number is what people are going to focus on, I think. 2.6%, clearly higher than what the Fed targets, approximately around 2%. Does this number matter? Yeah. Is it transitory or is it a new trend? And we don't know exactly yet, but we do know we have been expecting this number to show some of that signs of heat in the in the American economy for a couple of reasons here. You've got an economy that's reopening. So you have more demand, more people out spending their money. You also have these supply glitches around the world that seem to be part of the problem here. That could be temporary. That will work out uh, eventually here. So there's the reopening. There are these supply glitches. Unclear if these numbers are going to continue like this. And that's what the Fed has been really doing. Fed officials have been tamping down these expectations for sort of runaway inflation, what they see here as a a, a transitory blip in inflation that will uh, maybe uh, subside at, at the end of the summer. We just don't know for sure. I saw gas prices in there were a big part of this driver, a 9% increase in in gas prices. We'd seen gas prices rising. We knew the gasoline prices rose even further because of the the Suez Canal issue. So that might be um, in in this number here. And the monthly increase um, from March over February, that was the biggest monthly increase at six tenths of a percent that we've seen since all the way back in 2012. So it does show you the energy that's in the economy and how that is moving into, into prices in the pipeline all the way to consumers. Yeah, and it's how long transitory is in your book as well. The St. Louis Fed president said to us, look, we'd welcome it above 2% because we've been so rubbish at meeting the target in the past. So, um, yeah, this is a Fed determined to look through it. And as a result, we shall too. But we'll still talk about it. (laughs) Christine, great to have you with us. Thank you. Nice to see you. Grab has been grabbed. Southeast Asia's ride-hailing food and fintech giant is merging with a U.S. firm in a record-breaking deal valuing Grab at nearly $40 billion. The deal then leading to an IPO. Claire Sebastian joins me now. That was a very delicate and diplomatic way of talking about one of these SPAC deals. Claire, I hope you can do better. This is a fascinating company, a fintech in Southeast Asia. Just talk us through what this company does and um, wow, what a valuation potentially. Yeah, so this they call themselves Jitter a super app. They're in sort of three key areas. They want to be something that's used every day by lots of people that's really part of everyone's lifestyle, a bit like what Uber is is doing here. So they're in mobility, they do ride hailing, ride sharing, all of that. They're in food, food delivery, things like takeout, but also grocery delivery. And their newest and probably sort of biggest growth area going forward is fintech. They they already have Grab Pay, which is an e-wallet. They do consumer loans and insurance. They just recently uh, in February got an eight hundred and fifty million 
cash injection from investors to grow that area of the business. So this is a sort of very wide ranging company and they've had huge growth during the pandemic. They say that their gross merchandise volume in 2020 was about $12.5 billion. That was double the level in 2018, just two years prior. So they've been growing very fast, still not profitable. But what this does is allow investors in the US to get access to not only the fast growth of, of mobile and tech in general in the wake of the pandemic, but particularly in this Southeast Asian region where penetration is lower. So there's more opportunity for growth in the future. But $40 billion, a special purpose acquisition company, uh, Altimeter, really sort of putting its weight behind this company and bringing it to market. SPAC, boom, we continue to talk about it, Julia. It continues to be a very popular way to bring companies like this to, to the US markets in particular. Yeah. And the diversity of this business helping them throughout the COVID crisis, the ride hailing clearly suffered, as we saw all over the world. But I saw that the company was saying the the measure of sales that they use, gross merchandise value, $12.5 billion, mm. more than double that of 2018. So a real pandemic winner here. Timing, as they say, is everything. And they're not the only one. There's a whole host of tech companies, burgeoning tech companies in the region that are coming to market. Fascinating that this company also chose the United States rather than staying closer to home in light of what we've been talking about recently with their Chinese tech scrutiny here, Claire. But what are the other ones that are coming to market? Because they aren't alone. Yeah, the, the march of the Indonesian unicorns, Julia, I think we right. call it. Uh, there are other players within the, the, a very similar space. Traveloka is an Indonesian company, uh, which is, according to Bloomberg, rumored to be in talks with a, a SPAC uh, sponsored by Peter Thiel, the former PayPal uh, founder. So, so that could that could happen. It's not obviously confirmed just yet. Another company called Gojek, which is a huge ride-hailing company, really the biggest rival to, to grab in Indonesia. And the region is also rumored to be to be looking at an IPO, not clear if that would also be a SPAC. But, but, but very interesting to see these not only Southeast Asian companies, but mobile-driven companies uh, trying to get to the market this year. And there's a lot of, uh, of buzz around this region, Julia. Yeah, fascinating. What a space to watch. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. All right, to our next driver now in China, defending the efficacy of its vaccines after the country's top disease control officials said publicly the levels of protection they give are not high. China has shipped millions of doses to countries including Indonesia, Thailand, Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, Somalia and Tunisia. Chrissy Lustout has all the details. China is defending the efficacy of its homegrown vaccines after a top health official made a rare admission about the relatively low protection rates of China's COVID-19 shots. His comments gained traction on social media and they were quickly censored in China. State media put out an interview with the official saying that reports about his admission were, quote, a complete misunderstanding. At a conference in Chengdu over the weekend, Gao Fu, director of the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, said that the protection rates of existing vaccines are not high. And he listed a few options to solve the problem, like increasing the number of doses or changing the interval between shots and mixing different vaccines. Now, there is little data to show what the impact would be from mixing different types of vaccines, though clinical trials have begun, including here in Hong Kong. Now, earlier I spoke to Ivan Hung. He's a clinical professor at the Hong Kong University Department of Medicine. They are right now recruiting 100 subjects to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine first, and then, four weeks later, they will receive the more traditional Sinovac vaccine. Hung says that the trial is out to see if mixing vaccines would be more effective and more safe. This could be rolled out, of course, uh, as, as a one of the strategies, especially to 
tackle the uh, the variance problem uh, and also to address the issue that uh, some of the individuals who have received the uh, perhaps receiving the uh, BioNTech or the Sinovac vaccine uh, and then have allergy to that uh, to that vaccine and would like to switch platform for the, the second dose. Hung adds that the trial results could be out August or September this year. Available data shows that Chinese vaccines have efficacy rates lower than others, including Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna. And new data from Brazil shows that the Sinovac vaccine has 50.7 percent efficacy. That is just above the WHO recommended cutoff of 50 percent. And the study also revealed that Sinovac's efficacy rate can climb to 62.3 percent if there is a longer interval between doses. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Still to come here on First Move, when the chips are down, the U.S. must step up, says President Biden. We'll get the latest from Monday's Semiconductor Summit. And not out of the woods yet, the G20 presidency says pandemic aid must continue even as vaccinations accelerate. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Intel says it's in talks to supply U.S. automakers with the chips they desperately need. Vehicle production has been delayed and factories idled amid a global shortage. The White House held a summit on the crisis on Monday with President Biden saying America must do better. China and the rest of the world is not waiting and there's no reason why Americans should wait. We're investing aggressively in areas like semiconductors and batteries. That's what they're doing and others. So must we. For too long as a nation, we haven't been making the big, bold investments we need to outpace our global competitors. We've been falling behind on research and development and manufacturing. And put it bluntly, we have to step up our game. Joining us now, John Neufer, President and CEO of the Semiconductor Industry Association. John, fantastic to have you on. I want to talk about what the meeting generated in terms of an action plan, but can you just help us understand first, why has America's share of global manufacturing reduced so much despite relatively consistent investment from the industry itself? Yeah. So first of all, um, our our, um, our share has been falling. In 1990, we produced roughly 37% of the world's semiconductors. Now it's down to 12. And that's not because our our manufacturing has de- decreased. It's actually increased slowly in the U.S. What's happened is a massive explosion of semiconductor manufacturing, particularly in Asia. Roughly 80% of the world's semiconductors are now manufactured in Asia. Our competing governments for decades have been giving massive incentives for chip manufacturing. Our federal government does not do that. And it's it showed up in the degradation of our chip manufacturing base. So so as as President Biden said, it was music to our ears. We, we need we need to get in the game. And the Chips for America Act uh, sets up uh, roughly 50 billion dollars to get us on the right path. Is that enough? Because when I look at the amount of investment even just back in 2019, 16% of sales in the United States, it's second only to the, what, 20% of sales in the in this biotech and the pharma sector. You're saying it needs to be around 30% in order to be able to catch up and really compete. Is $50 billion of investment enough to achieve that in your mind? So, 
Great question, Julia, and that's $50 billion we consider to be a great start. Um, and it must also be a multi-year effort. We're, we're eyes wide open about that. Uh, it will help make the U.S. one of the most attractive places in the world to build chip manufacturing facilities. So we had uh, Boston Consulting Group do, uh, do a study, and it found what we get for $50 billion is over the next 10 years or so, roughly 19 new fabs and uh, create rough, roughly 400,000 new jobs. So that's that's a couple of details. But the big thing here is that that's enough to turn the tide for, for our declining manufacturing base. It gets us on a better path. It doesn't get us all the way there, but it certainly gets us started. You know, I saw a fascinating statistic, and you can tell me if this was used in the, in the meeting yesterday, the return on investment, $1 of investment, according to a report, joint report by you and Nathan Associates, adds $16.5 to US GDP, and it's tied, obviously, to the amount of jobs you can create. In terms of bang for buck, that's mesmerizing, if it's true. Yep. So that's on the research side of things. And what this means is that we need to double down on our research investments. So two Asian players have very impressively jumped in the lead in producing the, hot, the highest end chips. So our industry invests heavily in R&D. I think you know that $40 billion a year. And that's one of the most R&D intensive industries in the world. That's about one out of $5 in our sales. Mm-hmm. So yet others around the world lead and make making some of the most leading edge chips. So the U.S. government needs to do more to step into to the breach here. President Biden seems like he's ready to do that. Our sector has a long history of close R&D collaboration with the U.S. government. So federal investments, as you say, in semiconductor research offer an incredible ROI. Each additional dollar invests adds about $17 to the U.S. GDP. Yeah, because there's two things here. There's the manufacturing capacity and the yep. fabs that need to be created, but there's also the R&D to produce right. more and more high-powered chips in, in smaller size, to put it very simply. Um, let's talk about the supply right. chain vulnerabilities and what happens if we don't achieve this over the coming years. Because to your point, now 100% of the most advanced chips are manufactured in South Korea and, and Taiwan. So actually, it's it's not 100%, but it's the most advanced chips, which is below 10 nanometers. That is all done in Taiwan and South Korea. 90, 92% of it's done in Taiwan. 8% of it is done in Korea. Hmm. And so what's happening over the next 10 years is to meet the exploding demand of semiconductors, there's going to be a growth of about 50 or 60% growth in uh, fab semiconductor plants, fifty-six uh, percent growth in in their in their in their fifty uh, percent growth in construction of those fabs around the world. So, do we want those fabs to be built in Asia, or do we, do we want them built here? And I think one of the lessons of the, this past terrible year of, of a pandemic is we have to have stronger, more resi- more resilient supply chains. And I think that that means we need to have more manufacturing here in the U.S. of A. One of the points that you also made in the letter that was presented to the White House was making sure that America is competitive with the rest of the world. How is the sector going to compete if corporate tax rates go from 21 percent to 28 percent? Is that going to be a problem? Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's two things here. Um, whatever whatever happens in tax in terms of tax reform. 
it really needs to be competitive internationally. That's a, that's a big deal for, for us. Our sector is a global sector. 80% um, of our consumers are, are overseas. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, this is great with the Chips for America Act, potentially $50 billion uh, in incentives for manufacturing and research. But we'd hate to see um, taxes climb in a way that would negate all the wonderful gains we could get out of uh, the effort by the U.S. government to incentivize manufacturing on U.S. shores. Yeah, diplomatic way of uh, putting it there. John, thank you for that. Um, we spoke to the Global Foundry CEO, I know uh, one of your members, and he said the shortages that we're seeing today are going to last into 2022. Is that your assessment too? And let's assume the best case scenario in terms of investment, the tax environment in the United States. How long does it take to catch up, even to the Intel CEO's point that we could go from 12% capacity here to around a third of semiconductor chips? How long yeah, does that take? Well, uh just a couple of things on, on the on the discrete um, auto chip shortage. I just want to point out that um, beginning last year, we're actually selling more chips into the auto sector than we were the previous year, and that has continued in this year. So on the on the bigger picture, different analysts say different things. Some are saying that we'll be able to dig out of this hole generally, the the, the general chip shortage sometime at the end of this year. And some, as, as, as Tom Caulfield, the Global Foundries has said, it, it could spill into next year. You know, we're hopeful um, that it will, it will happen sooner than later, uh, but there's a divergence of opinions on that. And assuming best case scenario, time to get to a third of all chips being manufactured in the United States versus 12% market share today? Not gonna make a guess on that, but... Uh, <laughs> It's going to be a multi-year project, and it's going to take some audacious efforts by our industry and our government to get there. I believe we, we can do it, but it's going to take some, some real boldness and audacity. Audacity required. John Lufa, great to have you with us, the president and CEO of the Semiconductor Industry Association. Great to have you with us. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. markets are open for trade this Tuesday. And some of the key drivers today, of course, the recommendation from U.S. regulators to pause vaccinations with the J&J COVID-19 vaccine due to clot concerns. That's clearly dragged recovery stocks lower while boosting tech, which has done well throughout the pandemic. Johnson & Johnson itself trading lower in the session, too. A lot of hope has been pinned on this vaccine as it only requires one dose. As you can see, down some 2.7 percent in early trade. We also had the latest U.S. inflation data. CPI in March was up 2.6 percent compared to a year ago, slightly higher than expected and very much watched in terms of policy going forward. Now, as vaccinations pick up pace in Europe and in the United States, the Italian presidency of the G20 warning against over-optimism. Ministers are saying government support measures must remain in place. They're also warning that delays in getting vaccines to people around the world could lead to a multi-speed economic recovery. Joining us now is Ignacio Visco, Governor of the Bank of Italy. Governor Visco, fantastic to have you on the show. Just talk about concrete action for me, please, from the G20. What more can be done to support particularly those emerging nations that are struggling to receive vaccines early coming out of this crisis? 
Well, first of all, really what we observe is heterogeneity in response. Mm. Uh, there are uh, certain areas and countries which are doing pretty well, others that are lagging behind. And uh, therefore, really, to accelerate the vaccination plans is absolutely crucial. Uh, we see the light uh, <coughs> out of the tunnel, but really, as I say, we, we should accelerate the way we get out. Now, there is uh, uh, certainly a situation of difficulty in a number of countries, and uh, both on the liquidity and on the debt uh, uh, sides. The liquidity sides has been dealt with uh, a number of decisions that have been taken in uh, both by multi-development banks, which have provided uh, special special loans for that, and also by the debt suspension of uh, debt service suspension initiative, which has been agreed upon uh, last uh, last week in uh, in um, in the G20. That is crucial, but is not enough. So we have also uh, uh, approved the uh, proposal for the IMF to increase its uh, a new issue issue issuance of uh, special drawing rights, uh, which really has to be. Uh, somehow provided with transparency, avoiding really that it be used uh, to repay old debts, but to be used really to support the new initiatives. And there is also a, a special framework for uh, considering actions on accumulated debts for those countries which are in ma major difficulties. And these uh, will be based on two main pillars. One, uh, IMF programs, as usual, which have to be, however, uh, somehow tilted towards ensuring uh, sustainability and growth. And the second is the participation of private sector, besides the official one, in, in this uh, possible restructuring of debt. Debt repayment suspension is one thing, but for many of these nations, a lot of those that are looking at this situation and looking at the financial backdrop say, actually, we should be talking about debt cancellation. Where do these institutions, the IMF, the G20, stand on debt cancellation for those nations that are suffering most and financially can do little to support their countries because they have to worry about paying debt back to their creditors? Well, this is an issue that uh, has to be discussed uh, within uh, the, these international financial bodies mm. and also... Uh, at the G20, we have been touching upon in what I was mentioning before, that is this uh, uh, framework to, for dealing with debt difficulties of uh, countries which are mostly hit and who are mostly really poor uh, is, is, is crucial. But as I was saying, uh, this has to do both with official debt and debt uh, from the private sector. And we need to have the, this uh, put on comparable basis. But I'm sure that initiatives will take place to help these countries. We have been uh, somehow uh, observing uh, uh, analysis and data which have been provided by the World Bank, for example, that mm. say that about 100 million of people may, more than 100 million people, may uh, move back in, uh, in extreme poverty uh, after many, many years of improvements. Yeah, we have to be having this conversation. Um, I want to bring it to Italy specifically now and how confident you are of your growth forecast for this year. We recently spoke to the vaccine czar in the EU and he was talking about the prospect of herd immunity. 
in the EU by the middle of July. Is that what you're factoring into your forecasts or do we have to be more realistic? Will it take longer, particularly for Italy? Yes, there are two, two different points which I think have to be considered jointly. The first is that at the end we are observing some encouraging resilience of the Italian economy. Uh, the, certainly there was um, a, a decrease in GDP in the last quarter of last year, but it was limited, more limited than, than expected. And we are seeing that people are learning and the business are learning to deal with lockdowns, uh, except for those sectors which are most heavily hit and where social distancing really is still uh, particularly needed. Uh, we are expecting from the data we have uh, somehow an economic activity stabilizing now. And, uh, and uh, a recovery may start already in, the, in this quarter if the vaccination plan that is being undertaken by the government really maintains its promise. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the IMF has come up with uh, figures that uh, put growth rate this year above 4% for the Italian economy. We have looked at mechanical updates of our previous forecast and we can confirm confirm that this is uh, a, a real possibility. But at the same time, there are risks and the risks remain elevated. On one side, the cross-country heterogeneity and the difficulties in vaccination campaigns across the globe may really jeopardize perhaps or make it more difficult, mm -hmm. a global recovery like the one that has been anticipated. On the other, there may remain scars and these scars in in uh, which basically are predicated on the expectation or the uh, fear of a longer duration uh, of the health crisis may translate into permanently higher saving rates or difficulties in really going back to the usual modes of behavior so in this sense this is why we really have to accelerate the vaccine campaign and make also so improvements in health conditions in Italy, in Europe, and uh, I think it has to be a coordinated approach across the globe. This is why we have established a, a high-level com committee that will uh, produce to the G20 report that suggests the way forwards to finance improvements on health systems around the world. Yeah, certainly necessary. Governor, very quickly, I just want to ask you, I, I recently saw that Italy is managing to issue 50-year debt and it's doing it more cheaply than America, the United States can issue 30-year debt. And just in light of predictions of a 10% deficit, the extent of debt to GDP in Italy, I just wonder, it's a great thing that Italy can raise money, but I wonder whether in terms of financial stability risks going forward, we should be perhaps alarmed by what we're seeing. Well, first of all, really what matters here now is on, on one side to have policy measures in place to overcome this, uh, this very, very difficult time. The second is that sustainability is predicated on a number of things, certainly growth, certainly the size of the debt, certainly the uh, interest burden. And the interest burden now is, is absolutely very low and the maturity of the debt is very high. And uh, it may be even higher if these policies of uh, uh, issuing longer term debt uh, 
succeed and they think that they may succeed, there are two reasons for their success. First, there is a supply, and uh, these are is the time uh, of our um, years in which uh, there is a clear advantage in financing debt mm. uh, <laughs> by issuing ultra-long-term uh, paper, uh, something that has been emphasized, for example, also by Janet Yellen in her, in her testimony in January to Senate, I think. The, the other is uh, the demand side. Actually, there is demand for long-term, very long-term debt. Uh, both uh, There is even demand and not enough supply for longevity uh, debt. The reason is that there are long-term liability, uh, somehow liabilities are too much to be matched with long-term assets. And this is the time of, the, uh, uh, of our lives in which perhaps governments really can benefit from a very, very low, low uh, yes. interest rate. But I agree with you, we have to be very careful uh, go going forward. As the emergency is over, we have really to reduce a number of transfers and make them very, very selective uh, and targeted. I think we agree. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Governor of the Bank of Italy there, Ignacio Visco. Fantastic to chat to you. Thank you. All right, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Exciting times for champions of crypto. Bitcoin at a record high ahead of Wednesday's landmark IPO of Coinbase on the Nasdaq. Ethereum or Ether also breaking records, but it's the building blocks beneath and how they can be used to disrupt and improve existing infrastructure like payment systems and more that I think is critical to understand. Now, one such area is called DeFi or decentralized finance, basically using the Ethereum blockchain to cut out intermediaries or the middlemen from financial contracts and create a more efficient borderless financial system. Now traditional financial firms like Mastercard, UBS and JP Morgan are taking note. They and others have just invested $65 million in Consensus, a major blockchain player in the space. Here to explain all, Joseph Lubin, he's CEO of Consensus and a co-founder of Ethereum. Joe, fantastic to have you on the show. I think and congratulations on the deal. We have to start by explaining what DeFi is. What is the potential of decentralized finance? Well, thanks, Julia. Um, so just as the internet and web protocols democratized access to information, ability to publish information, to build e-commerce or use e-commerce or uh, interact with uh, social networks, decentralized finance is the democratization of the financial industry. So no longer will financial protocols be built as uh, as essentially siloed and behind closed doors. Uh, entrepreneurs, uh, technologists are building it collaboratively uh, out in the open. Um, and uh, it's a, a revolution that is uh, is long overdue. Explain this revolution, because when I see people discussing what's already going on and the growth behind the scenes is multi-billion dollars worth of contracts already being signed, they talk about this idea that we're seeing incredible growth, that it's seamless in terms of signing contracts between companies across borders. It doesn't matter which country you're in, but also that it's self-policing. And I think in light of recent hedge fund blow-ups and, and big banks losing money as a result and a, a lack of transparency in the space, this idea of self-policing is vitally important to understand as well. Can you explain it? 
Yeah, so any uh, financial instrument or financial flow that you can imagine in the traditional uh, financial system um, has been or will be replicated in the decentralized finance space and many that you couldn't even imagine, things like flash loans. So uh, different projects are building protocols for lending, borrowing, insurance, uh, decentralized trading of tokens. Um, it, it, and they are thought of as Lego building blocks and that you can wire them together. So a company right now can uh, build its own financial instruments without uh, the need for intermediation and wire up its own financial flows, the need for an intermediation, and can transact in real time uh, anywhere across the world. Um, compliance can be built into smart contracts. So uh, you can build the rules of the nation that uh, our company is resident in uh, into these smart contracts. And uh, in terms of self-policing, it's, it's a very collaborative ecosystem. Uh, everybody talks to everybody else. So everybody's trying to be interoperable um, with uh, other decentralized finance institutions. And, and so uh, when there are issues, and there will, will be lots of issues as this uh, new technology gets built out, um, these issues get fixed in real time. No, I'm going to have to interrupt you there because we are having some connection issues. We are having connection issues with you. So I don't want to keep you talking when people can't understand what you're saying. We're going to try and deal with those connection issues, take a quick break and hopefully get you back in a second. Um, you're watching First Move. More to come. It's live TV. This happens. We'll try and fix it. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The streaming war intensifies as people continue to spend more time at home during the pandemic. Well, in today's Think Big, Anna Stewart reported how Dubai-based Stars Play is betting big on original Arabic content in the battle against global streaming giants. Listen in. Stuck at home with cinemas shut. Binging on TV series and movies has got many of us through the COVID-19 lockdowns. That's been a boon for global streaming services and potentially a major shake-up in home entertainment. The next big idea is producing original Arabic content, specifically designed and meant for the web and uh, the younger audience. Dubai-based streaming company Stars Play is launching new Arabic movies and TV series for mobile consumption. Once the preserve of multinationals with deep pockets like Netflix and Amazon Prime, Sheikh says the rising demand for original language content is an opportunity for smaller players like Stars Play to carve out a niche for itself. We would like to focus on short-form content meant for the younger audience uh, with the positive message overall. Stars Play is already the top streaming company in the Middle East in terms of subscribers, according to a 2019 report by IHS Market. It aims to reach 2 million users by the end of the year. To strengthen that position, the CEO says he's also investing in a new distribution model. Stars Play is enabling both subscriptions and on-demand payments without the need of a credit card. The credit card penetration is very fragmented from one country to another. So we've essentially built uh, payment solutions to accompany our entertainment service. With COVID-19 opening new opportunities for streaming services, the competition with global players is also heating up. 
Industry analysts say Netflix, Prime and China's iQiyi are boosting Arabic original content in the region. Sheikh believes a competition crunch is the main risk facing the industry. The market will get more competitive and that's perhaps one of the reasons why we're scaling up and ramping up our own original Arabic productions. Streaming platforms registered a record 1.1 billion subscribers last year, according to the Motion Picture Association. A number that's drawing more niche players to join the home entertainment shakeup. Anna Stewart, CNN. For the first time in over 50 years, the Oscars won't be shown in Hong Kong. The city's leading broadcaster has decided not to air the ceremony later this month. And perhaps no coincidence, it comes as two of the nominees are being criticised in mainland China. CNN's Will Ripley has more. This year's Academy Awards off the air in Hong Kong. You're going to need a bigger boat. Hollywood's biggest night won't be broadcast in the Chinese territory for the first time since 1968, more than half a century, even with two Hong Kong films nominated. The city's leading broadcaster, TVB, tells CNN, the Oscar blackout is purely a business decision. Political scientist Willie Lam believes it's much bigger than business. Well, the extent of censorship and self-censorship in Hong Kong uh, for the past few years has been stunning. They do not want to show anything which is considered to be uh, politically incorrect. So uh, that's why uh, they would better err on the side of caution. Caution, he says, over comments made by Beijing-born director Chloe Chow. Her film, Nomadland, nominated for six Oscars. Including Best Picture of the Year. Director Zhao did an interview many years ago in which she expressed doubts about the censorship system in China. Lam believes Chinese media regulators are also wary of Do Not Split, an Oscar-nominated documentary about the 2019 Hong Kong protests. I'm surprised how fast it's possible to change the city. And now you see all these examples of how these basic human rights, from my point of view, are disappearing. Hong Kong has charged dozens of pro-democracy activists and former lawmakers under its draconian national security law imposed by Beijing last year. The city's chief executive, Carrie Lam, says the law also applies to the arts, potentially muzzling movie makers in a city once called Hollywood of the East. This is the Avenue of Stars, modeled after the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And this is the statue for the Hong Kong Film Awards, kind of like the Oscars, but only Hong Kong films. This town's movie business peaked about three decades ago. Martial arts legend Bruce Lee received the Star of the Century Award from the Hong Kong Film Awards in 2005, more than 30 years after his untimely death. At 32, Lee set the stage for another Hong Kong star, Jackie Chan, who took home an honorary Oscar five years ago. And this year, the first Academy Award nomination for a Hong Kong-born director for Derek Song's film, Better Days. The best days of Hong Kong cinema may be over, critics fear, if creative freedom, like the Oscars, is silenced. Will Ripley, CNN, Hong Kong. 
And unfortunately, we were unable to re-establish our link with Joe Lubin from Consensus. So we were trying to provide you with a dose of decentralized finance by getting him back later on in the week. I apologize for that. And that's it for the show. Stay safe. As always, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.